when Jesus comes again, he will separate the righteous into eternal life and the wicked into eternal punishment. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, folks, I have a little confession for you here this morning, and that is, I really don't want to preach this sermon today, and it's not because I'm tired or that I'm not feeling well. Now, I am not looking forward to this because this is the sermon that no pastor likes to preach, but must. The sermon no pastor likes to preach, but must. In fact, I think if you like thinking about this or you enjoy preaching about this, there may be something wrong with you because it concerns a topic that without doubt is the most painful and disturbing thing of all to contemplate. What am I talking about? Hell. Hell. See, D.L. Moody once said that no one should ever preach on the topic of hell without a tear in his eye. And I think that he was absolutely right. But preach it, we must. We must not preach only the things that please us. We must also preach the things that disturb us. We must not preach only the things that lift up our souls. We must also preach the things that press down upon our souls. We must not preach only the glories of heaven. We must also preach and warn of the horrors of hell. So we are continuing in our series, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels as suggested in this book, One Perfect Life, by John MacArthur. We're moving on in our series here, looking at the Olivet Discourse on the subject of eternal life and eternal punishment. Eternal life and eternal punishment. And our text is coming from Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And what is the big idea? What is the main theme that I want us to take away from our message here today? And that is, when Jesus comes again, he will separate the righteous into eternal life and the wicked into eternal punishment. Eternal life and eternal punishment. We've been talking about the Olivet Olivet Discourse here. This is the third of three messages on the Olivet Discourse, and it very easily could have been a lengthy series all in itself. But we have touched on the highlights of of this major teaching of Jesus shortly before he went to the cross. I have noted that it is called the Olivet Discourse because of the location where Jesus preached it. Last week, when I asked where Jesus preached it, someone here whose name rhymes with Sabin Remandel blurted out, Olive Garden. Now, I think she may have been a little distracted by hunger when she said that. But as I thought about it, you know, had it been at Olive Garden, however, Jesus would not have had any trouble at all keeping that basket of endless breadsticks going, would he? So no, it was not Olive Garden, but it is called the Olivet Discourse because it took place where? On the Mount of Olives, just to the east of Jerusalem. 
And it has been the subject of great debate among Bible scholars about how to properly interpret its contents. Several different schools of thought have emerged, but I will tell you how I have come to understand it. And there are many good questions that we might ask of this text. As I said before, is it describing near-term future events or long-term future events? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Was Jesus speaking to his disciples at that time, or was he speaking to future generations of disciples, including even us today? Yes. Is this addressing the nation of Israel, or is it addressing the church? Yes. So I do realize that there are some challenging interpretational questions, regardless of what perspective you might take on this. And I have been taking what's called a premillennial dispensational approach to the text. Say what? Premillennial dispensational, what does that mean? Well, in a nutshell, premillennialism teaches that Christ will return before the millennium. And following his return, there will be a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth while Satan is bound. And following the millennium, Satan will be loosed and there will be a final revolt against Christ, which will be put down quickly and decisively. And then comes final judgment, followed by the new heaven and the new earth. In a separate nutshell, dispensationalism teaches that there is a distinction to be made between Israel and the church. And it holds that there are promises that God made to his people, the Jews, that will yet be fulfilled during the millennium. And in this view, the church has not inherited the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament, nor have they been spiritually fulfilled, nor have they been nullified due to unbelief. But there remains, therefore, a future for ethnic Israel, many of whom will turn in great numbers to Messiah Jesus at the end of the age. Now that is a lot to take in, I know. And I respect greatly those brothers and sisters in Christ who take a different perspective on these end times prophecies. And I'm certainly not going to argue about it or divide over it. But as I stated before, regardless of one's views on these end times prophecies, there are clear, compelling, practical truths that we can all take away from this text And that is certainly the case with today's message. So a little context here. We're in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has presented himself to the nation of Israel as their promised Messiah. And while many believed in him, they did not fully understand the nature of his mission, including even his own disciples. The leadership of the nation had rejected Jesus, and they thought him to be a false teacher. And because of the nation's rejection of him as their Messiah, Jesus has pronounced judgment on the nation, and then he prophesies what is to come. We listened previously as Jesus spoke about signs of his coming and about his return to earth. He gave practical instructions and applications in light of his return. Now, I don't believe the church, as we understand it here now, is primarily in view in these verses but I believe it is the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. But just as God's people in a future time are told to be prepared, watchful, and faithful, so too believers today are also to be faithful and alert. Finally then, for today, Jesus speaks of the reality of judgment when he comes. And whether one understands the judgment described here 
as a separate judgment from the judgment of the wicked of all time, as seen in Revelation 20, the warning nevertheless still stands for people of all ages, including us here today. So let's look at this challenging passage. We find it in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now before we look at what this text is teaching, I think we need to examine carefully what this text is not teaching. What this text is not teaching. You know, in our Wonder Lake Bible Institute class last week, we discussed the topic of hermeneutics, which is the art and science of proper Bible interpretation. And one of those principles that we looked at is called the analogia fide, or the analogy of faith, part of which means that Scripture must interpret Scripture. So if we're going to properly understand Scripture, we need to understand how does this fit in the context of that, of that passage, of that book, of the entirety of scriptural teaching then. So if we were to read this text in isolation, just this text alone, without any understanding of the rest of biblical teaching on righteousness and salvation, we could come away from it with a, an entirely unbiblical understanding. If this passage was all the Bible said about righteousness and unrighteousness, we might draw the conclusion that righteousness is based entirely on what? On works. 
on good works, doing things. If you do these good works, then you're righteous. If you don't, you're not. If you do these good works, well, then you're going to go into everlasting life. But if you don't do these good works, well, then you're going to go into eternal punishment. If this was all we had, you might understandably draw that conclusion, wouldn't you? But it is not all that we have on this topic. It is not all that Scripture says about this. We must not isolate this. We must put it in the context of the full teaching of the Word of God then. We might wrongly conclude people are saved or lost purely on the basis of their deeds. And those who do good deeds, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner... They will be saved because they did those things. And meanwhile, those who did not do these things will will be lost because they did not do those things. But is that what Scripture teaches about salvation? No, it does not teach we're saved by our good works. No, we are saved how? By our faith in Christ. We're saved, in one sense, we're saved by good works. It's just not our good works, it's whose good works. Christ, by his good works, right? We're saved by what he did for us. But yes, though, there should be the fruit of righteousness in the lives of those who are declared righteous by faith in Christ. But that is not the basis of salvation. It's the life and the substitutionary death and the resurrection of Jesus. And our faith in that, in him, that is the basis of salvation. That is what saves us. So let us understand then, this passage is not teaching works righteousness. Yes, there is the fruit of good deeds which should follow salvation in Christ. But that's not how we're saved, by doing good works. We're saved by faith. So what is this passage teaching then? If it's not teaching works righteousness, what is it saying to us? Well, let's take a look. First off, it's speaking of separation, separation. This passage speaks of separation of sheep and goats and the two destinies of the sheep and the goats. At first, the separation, separation of sheep and goats. You know, in that time, in that culture there, sheep and goats would often be put together as they were out in pastures feeding. But then there would come a time when they would be separated then. Uh, do you shear a goat for its, uh, for its uh, wool? No, you don't do that. So, so it's something that at some point, the sheep and the goats get separated. And so in the Old Testament, God's people, or even in the New for that matter, God's people were often spoken of as being sheep. And so the goats, so the sheep are believers. They're God's people. The goats then are unbelievers. Now, according again to that premillennial dispensational view, when the Lord returns here in his glory, he will judge not only the nation of Israel, as we see in the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents that we looked at before, but he will also judge the nations, that is, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Now, some see this judgment that we read about here And that judgment in Revelation 20, which is called the Great White Throne Judgment, which is for the judgment of the wicked, of of people of all time, living in debt. They see this as the same judgment as that Great White Throne Judgment. 
But I don't believe that's the case. I think this is a separate judgment referred to here. This judgment of the nations or the Gentiles is that generation at that time when Jesus returns. And it will occur 1,000 years earlier in order to determine who will and who will not enter the millennial kingdom, the earthly millennial kingdom. So these words, the nations, refers to Gentiles. And these are the people, other than Jews, who have lived through the tribulation period. And they will be judged, not as entire entire nations, but individually. They will be judged individually, not as national groups, national groups. And they will be described here then as a mingling of sheep and goats, which the Lord will separate. So there will be a separation of sheep and goats, a separation of believers and unbelievers when he comes. And we see this this first group addressed is the sheep. And the sheep represent believers. The king on his throne will extend an invitation to those on his right hand, the place of honor, the sheep. They will receive an invitation to enter the kingdom that God has prepared since the creation of the world. And the basis of their entrance is seen in their actions that they provided food, drink, and clothing and care for the king. The king's statement that will prompt the sheep then to respond, well, when did we do these things? We, we don't recall ever ministering to you or doing these things to you. But he will answer what? When you did these things for the least of these brothers of mine, you were doing so for me. When they were serving these believers, when they were doing these things for God's people, because by the way, will there, whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture, even if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, will there be believers on the earth during the tribulation? Yes, there will. Because even if the church is raptured before the tribulation, there will be people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during that period. So there will be sheep on the earth, God's people, believers on the earth during the tribulation then. And it says, so for these then, these are those sheep then. You ministered to them. And again, they didn't minister out of a works righteousness. It was a ministry that came out of the rightness of their hearts because they were followers of Jesus at a very difficult time, I might add. And so in view of this then, he says, you will enter the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There will be great distress at that time in the world. There will be Jews who come to believe in Jesus, in the Messiah. And the forces of that world dictator, the Antichrist at that time, will be doing everything possible to exterminate all the Jews. You might think, well, that doesn't sound very likely. Some movement to try to exterminate all the Jews. That couldn't possibly happen in our lives, could it? Anybody here been a little surprised? by things we've seen in the news over the last uh, year or so here, over the last few months. We shouldn't be. But there it is. We're seeing the truth come out and the attitude that many people have toward the Jewish people. We shouldn't be surprised that there will be a movement to eradicate them. So a Gentile believer going out of his way to assist a Jewish believer in the tribulation will mean that the Gentile has become a believer in Jesus Christ through the tribulation. And that will put that that person in great jeopardy. His works will not save him, but his works will reveal 
that he is redeemed. So we have the sheep. These are believers. And then we have the goats. The goats represent unbelievers. And to the goats on his left hand, the king will pronounce judgment. They will be told, depart into the eternal fire prepared, not for men, but for the devil and his angels, the demons. And the basis of their judgment will be their failure to extend mercy to the remnant of Jewish believers during the tribulation. And their lack of righteous works will evidence their unconcern for them. Such individuals, they will sympathize with the Antichrist, with the world dictator. They will support his cause. But they will be removed from the earth. And they will be cast into eternal fire to undergo eternal punishment. And with all the wickedness removed in the various judgments at the second coming, the kingdom will begin on earth with only saved individuals and physical bodies constituting the earthly kingdom as the king's subjects. But they won't be the only ones there. Glorified saints from the Old Testament times will be there, and also saints from the church age will be there. Who are you? Are you a saint from the church age? You are, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you will be there too, of the, in, in, inhabiting the kingdom at that time. So in this extended prophetic sermon, Jesus has answered his disciples' questions about the sign of his coming and the end of the age. He has presented practical lessons for those who will be living at that time, encouraging them to faithfulness, to watchfulness and preparedness. By way of application, though, these things apply to us too, don't they? To believers of any age, that we are to be faithful that we are to watch, that we are to be prepared. And he concludes by pointing out then the establishment of the kingdom, the judgment of both Jews and of Gentiles. But it is Jesus' final words in this message. This is not the part here up to this point. This is not the part that I don't want to preach on or don't like to preach on. It's what Jesus says at the end. His final words in this message are, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Two destinations. And ultimately, there are only two final destinations for all people. Eternal punishment or eternal life? Hell or heaven? The righteous will go into eternal life, heaven and the new earth. But the unrighteous will go into eternal punishment, hell. I love to think about heaven. I love to talk to people about heaven. I love to preach about heaven. You know, I've joked before, there was a, a, a great book on this topic that I, I really like, that has really challenged me and changed some of my thinking about heaven. Uh, that book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And I, I think that I am due some royalties, you know, from that, from all the books that, that I've, uh, I'm sure have been bought because I told people to get it. And so I'd encourage you, go and get it and, and read that book. It's very profound and powerful, thought-provoking. I love to think about it. I love to talk about that with people. I love to preach about that. 
and there will be a great multitude of people from all history who will be there. But that's not the only destination for people. There is another final destination. And sadly, there will be a vast number of people from all history who will be there as well. Hell is the eternal destination of those who have persisted in sin, have rejected the offer of salvation in Christ. I don't like to think about hell. I don't like to talk about hell. I don't like to preach about hell. But preach it, I must. And Jesus spoke far more about hell than he did about heaven. Did you know that? And he warned people again and again about the reality of hell. And so we must hear all of the truth, not just the parts that we like or make us feel comfortable, but all of the truth. So first, some painful truth, some painful truth. What does the Bible teach about hell? Well, the Bible describes it as a terrible place of never-ending punishment where people bear the full weight of their sin forever and ever. I know that this is not a a, a great analogy or illustration, but I think it, it, it begins there. Have you ever had a time in your life where maybe where you were convicted of something that, that you knew was wrong and you knew you had done that wrong and you saw the destruction that it brought upon you or upon other people and it weighed you down heavily and your conscience was troubled by that. You were tormented by the thought of that. And saying, why did I do that? Or if only, if only. And just imagine then an existence where that is your thought and that's what you're aware of constantly was the magnitude of your sin and your rebellion and the wrong constantly weighing you down, tormenting your conscience day and night forever and ever. See, hell is a place of misery and suffering where we receive the just punishment for our sin. There is a lot of biblical imagery is used to describe this awful place. Some of that imagery includes darkness. It's called the the blackest darkness. That is, there is no moral light or love or goodness there. It is only darkness. Powerful picture, too, is this where Jesus says where in hell there is gnashing of teeth. You think about it, what does that mean? What is gnashing of teeth? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, any, do you have any teeth grinders here at night? Or sometimes where you grind your teeth or that? So that gnashing of teeth is what is just what was someone who is just so overcome with the agony of their judgment and the weight of their sin that their teeth are gnashing from it. Like the rich man in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, every sinner in hell will have a full realization that he or she deserves to be there. Every sinner there will have a fully informed, acutely aware, and sensitive conscience, which in hell becomes his or her own tormentor. And this is the experience of torture in hell, a person fully aware of his or her sin with a relentlessly accusing conscience without relief for even one moment. 
and the guilt of sin will produce shame and everlasting self-hatred. See, the rich man knew that eternal punishment for a lifetime of sins was justified and deserved, and that's why he never protested or questioned being in hell. So there is darkness, the blackest darkness. There is gnashing of teeth of that regret and that constant torment and accusing conscience. But then there is also fire, a blazing furnace. Fire is associated in Scripture with God's searing judgment. It is the pain of God's anger of bearing the wrath of God, the anger of God against your sin. As one commentator said, Whether the flames are literal or symbolic of some even greater woe, we can be certain of this, that all that the world has to offer, money, fame, reputation, power, or sexual gratification, all of that is hardly worth the forfeiture of our eternal souls. Jesus said, what What would it gain, gain a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Darkness, gnashing of teeth, fire, a blazing furnace. But it's also eternal separation. Eternal separation from God's loving presence, from God's mercy and God's grace. Hell is often described as the absence of God, but that, strictly speaking, is not true. God is not absent from hell. God is present everywhere, including in hell. And God is very much present there. He's not absent. He is present there. But he is present there not to comfort or to show mercy or to offer second chances. But he is present there as the eternal judge who will forever pour out the cup of his wrath against sin. You know, sometimes we use that phrase, we say eternal separation from God because we don't like to talk about what the scripture is saying there in its fullness. Yes, it is separation from God's love and God's favor and God's blessing, but it's not separation from his presence there to judge and to pour out his wrath, his anger against sin. He is very much present for that. We're told in Scripture, too, that at the end of the age, at the end of the age, death and Hades, the abode of the wicked now, will be cast into the lake of fire, the eternal hell. Some will say, why should this be eternal? Why should it be eternal punishment? Well, it is eternal because, first of all, because sin is infinitely more serious than we realize. I think we have such a tiny understanding of the gravity of of sin and the greatness of the offense against an infinitely holy God. But it will also be eternal because people will not stop sinning. That punishment is eternal because people will eternally sin. Hell is where torment and anguish never cease. I wanted to share some words with you on this um, uh, someone recently was doing a, a study of some uh, Christians of the past, of great lives there, and they were reading up on Jonathan Edwards, and he asked me if I had anything on Jonathan Edwards I can give him to read. And I said, well, I do, but I'm not sure you're going to want to read it, or you're going to enjoy to read it, but I think you should. 
Jonathan Edwards wrote some, some great stuff, but probably the, the thing that he was most famous for was a sermon that he delivered called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Any of you ever heard of that? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, I wanted to just share some of these things. Now, when he preached this sermon hundreds of years ago now, there were people who were listening to it. There were people who were actually fainting <laughs> from this and telling him, stop, please stop. We don't want to hear any more. Well, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon to you on that. By the way, I heard a message coincidentally earlier this week with a pastor who is preaching faithfully and biblically on this topic of hell. And as he was going through this here, and, and, and clearly the, the tension was strong in the room, as you might expect it to be. And he says, and by the way, folks, this is not how to grow a church, preaching like this, right? So, and I know that. So I don't do this in order to grow the church, because this is not something a lot of people want to hear, right? But it is something that we do need to hear, and if we're going to be faithful to God's word, to all of God's word, Right? So I want to read some, some excerpts from this, this sermon by Jonathan Edwards that is very powerful, that, that tells us the reality of hell and of the wrath of God and what that means. But here's what he says. He says, The purpose of this terrifying subject is to wake up the unconverted people in this congregation. What you have heard is true of every one of you who do not believe and trust in Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, is spread right beneath you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of God's wrath. There is hell's wide open mouth, and you have nothing to stand on or to grab onto, nothing between you and hell but the air. And only the power and the mere pleasure of God holds you up. You are probably unaware of this, You notice that you are being kept out of hell, but you do not see that it is in God's hand, that it is God's hand that is keeping you out. Instead, you look at other things, such as your good health, the way you take care of yourself, and the things that you do to preserve your life. But in fact, these things are nothing. And if God withdrew his hand, these things would no more keep you from falling than thin air holds you up a person who is suspended in it. Your own wickedness weighs you down like lead and is dragging you down toward hell with great weight and force. Again, if God would let you go, you would immediately sink, quickly descending and plunging into the bottomless gulf. All of your health, all of your personal care, all of your best schemes, all of your own righteousness would no better support you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would stop a falling rock. The wrath of God is like great waters that are temporarily dammed up. They keep rising higher and higher until they find an outlet. The longer they have been dammed up, the more rapid and powerful will be their flow once they are let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been carried out yet. But in the meantime, your guilt has been building up. And every day you are storing up for yourself more wrath. Sinner, think seriously about the fearful danger you're in, God is holding you over a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of his wrath. Yet you have no interest in a mediator and nothing to grab hold of to save yourself, nothing to fend off the flames of wrath, nothing in yourself, nothing you have ever done, nothing you can do to persuade God to spare you for one moment. 
consider here more specifically the wrath, whose wrath it is. It is the wrath of the infinite God. Consider then also that it is an everlasting wrath. Here is the section which just haunts me to think about. He says, It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for even one moment, but you will suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this intense and horrible misery. When you look ahead, you will see a long forever, an unlimited length of time before you. This will swallow up all of your thoughts. It will amaze your soul and you will be in absolute despair of ever being delivered, of its ever coming to an end, or of receiving any reduction of torment or any rest at all. You will know for sure that you must wear out many long ages, millions and millions of ages, in struggling and fighting against this merciless vengeance. And when you have struggled and fought through all of these many ages, you will realize that hardly a second has gone by and eternity still remains. Your punishment will be infinite. Oh, who can express the horrible state of a soul in that condition? All that we can possibly say about it is only a very feeble and faint image of what it will be like. It is inexpressible and inconceivable for who knows the power of God's anger. But the sermon doesn't end there. He says, now you have an extraordinary opportunity. This day, Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. Many are flocking to him and pressing into his kingdom. They are coming daily from the east and the west, from the north and the south. There was a great revival that was going on at that time as he was preaching. Many who until very recently were in the same miserable condition that you are in now are happy their hearts filled with love for him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. They are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How terrible it would be to be left behind in such a day, to see others feasting while you're grieving and perishing. How awful it would be to see so many people rejoicing and singing with joy from their hearts while you can do nothing but mourn and feel sorrow in your heart and cry because your spirit is so afflicted. How can you rest for one moment if you are now in that condition? See, that is the painful truth. But you know what? There is also glorious truth. There is also glorious truth, and it is this. Jesus saves all who turn in faith to him from this terrible fate. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He finds no satisfaction in those who choose hell over him. But on the contrary, God loved the world so much that he sent his son to rescue and redeem us. Jesus' death and resurrection are good news for lost sinners willing to believe that our sin debt has been paid in full. Those who receive God's grace through faith will live forever with him. Jesus is the best God can give us. God has nothing greater to offer to us than his son, and the salvation he delivers. Those who have placed their faith in Christ have no reason to fear death or the grave, no reason to fear hell, but rather, on the contrary, the best is yet to come for them because Christ has overcome sin and death and hell on our behalf. 
You know, when we think of the suffering of Jesus, we tend to focus on what he did on the cross for us. We tend to focus on the physical pain and the physical suffering. And it was enormous, wasn't it? The physical pain of crucifixion. But that was not the greatest pain or the suffering that Jesus faced. It was not the physical, but it was the spiritual torment of when he took hell for you on the cross, when he took the punishment for our sins, when he took hell upon himself. And I believe that was what Jesus was wrestling with when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. And we're told there what? That he prayed not once, not twice, but three times. He said what? Father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me. What was he talking about? He's talking about hell. The cup is the cup of his wrath of God pouring out his holy anger at sin. When Jesus came, he lived a life of perfect righteousness for you. He gives that to you as a gift. But then he went to the cross where he took the punishment for our sins, which was not only physical death. It was primarily what? Hell. He took hell for you on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. You see, and that's the glorious truth here. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love that verse. What a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel message there, isn't it? For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the glorious truth that we must remember over against this painful truth. So what? Well, when Jesus comes again, he will separate the righteous into eternal life and the wicked into eternal punishment. Scripture tells us, too, in Revelation 20, that there is a final judgment that's called the great wide throne judgment in which God will raise all of those wicked persons from all eternity or from all time, all human history, and they will be judged as well. There are only two destinations eternal life, eternal punishment. So it asks first, first and foremost, whose righteousness are you depending on? Works righteousness won't cut it. Doing good deeds won't cut it. We must be perfect. And there's only one who is perfect. The only way we can be right with God, the only way we can escape hell is by trusting in the one who took it for us. And his righteousness. So who are you depending on? Your own righteousness? Your own good works? Or the righteousness of Christ and his perfect goodness? 
Putting your faith in yourself or in Christ? Second, we must preach all the truth. By the way, every one of you, you're a believer in Jesus, you're a preacher too. You may not stand up here on Sunday morning, but you preach when you, when you tell people God's word. And I know what, you know what, I like to, I like to focus on the really good stuff too, the, the stuff that makes, me, makes us feel, I like to talk about heaven. I like to talk about the blessings we have in Christ. But we can't speak only of that. We must speak all of the truth. Preach all of the truth. But then one final thought here for you today. You might say, well, this seems a little strange. How does that come out of a message on hell? Well, I'll tell you. This is what we must forgive. We must pray and we must love. Forgive, pray, and love. You know, there was a movie that came out not too long ago. It was called Eat, Pray, Love. That's not this. this that, that was something else here. We must what? Forgive, pray, love. Why must we forgive? You know, I know a lot of folks, we can struggle, can struggle with anger and resentment, can't we? Maybe there's some folks, people in our life that we need to forgive. And maybe, maybe one of the reasons why we struggle with forgiving people and why we want to continue to punish them in our hearts and our minds is because we think it's somehow that that's just, that they deserve, that they deserve, they deserve our anger. They deserve our punishment. We're not going to forgive them. Well, I want you to know, God is the perfect eternal judge. He doesn't need you or me to punish people for him or to set things right. He will do that. And when we refuse to forgive people, who are we harming? Ourselves. We can forgive people because God is the perfect judge. And we ought to be horrified at the thought of anybody going to hell. And that's why we do what? Why we pray. Why we pray for them. Forgive. Pray. And love them. Don't stew in your anger and resentment and bitterness. God is the judge. You're not. Forgive, release them. Pray for them. Because this is a horrible fate. Love them. Care for them. Speak truth to them. And some of us are saying, well, well, well wait a minute. Um, this person that I'm refusing to forgive, that I don't want to forgive, they're another believer. They're not going to go to hell. Well, no, they're not. And thank God for that. But you know what? You don't need to be their judge either. Because God is their judge too, isn't he? God is going to judge each of us. Now, he's not going to judge you and me. He's not going to judge believers for their sins that eternally. That was done. That was accomplished when? In Jesus on the cross. But we are all going to give an account to God. And some of us are going to gain rewards for it. Some of us may lose some rewards. But the point is, is you don't need to judge them and I don't need to. God is their judge. And we can forgive them too. How can we who have been forgiven so much forgive so comparatively little? Forgive, pray, and love. Jesus said what? To pray for your enemies, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you and use you spitefully. Why? Because God is a just God.
You don't need to be the judge. He will be. And because he is a just God, we ought to be praying for people, not harboring bitterness and resentment against them. Forgive, pray, and love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I know this is a hard topic to think about, Lord. I don't like to think about it any more than anyone else does. But God, how wonderful to know that you gave your son, you gave the Lord Jesus Christ who endured the suffering of hell for us, the infinite God in a moment of time taking upon himself eternal punishment that we might not suffer that same fate. So Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray, Lord, that if your spirit is touching their heart and their mind, that maybe there's someone who does not know you, does not know the Savior, is not trusting in you. I pray that your spirit would prompt them and move them to say, I surrender, Lord. I believe in Jesus. I put my trust in him that he lived a perfect life for me, that he died for my sin on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he's coming again to judge all. I believe that and I trust him. Forgive my sin. Give me the gift of eternal life and help me and teach me now, Lord, what it means to faithfully follow you. Lord, maybe there's someone here who's struggling with forgiveness. Lord, you are the judge and for some, that is a, will be a, a fearsome and frightful prospect of eternal judgment. I pray, Lord, that we would release that person and that we would pray for them and teach us to love them. And for our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, you are the judge, too, of them. We release our hurt, our anger, our bitterness. Teach us, Lord, to love them and pray for them, to love as you have loved us. Lord, this is a a fearsome topic, but how good to know that you didn't leave us to it, but you sent a Savior, and we have eternal hope in his name, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.